So why are we here? I don't mean to cause like an existential crisis uh, this, this early on a Sunday morning. Um, I'm, I'm not asking like, why are we as human beings here on the planet or, or what's the purpose of life? Those are important questions. Uh, but, but I'm asking why, why are we, not, not why are you here? You, you may not actually have a good answer for that. Somebody just promised you lunch afterwards. Um, we'll talk about you being here next week. But I mean, why, why are we as a local church, as First United Methodist Church of Dunedin, why, why are we here? And like, like here, here in Dunedin, Florida, at the corner of Douglas and Main and Douglas and Wood Street. Why, why in 1915 did some folks decide to build a church and gather as a church on Main Street in Dunedin? Why are we here? Turns out we're actually not the first ones uh, to ask that question. We're not the first church to ask that question. Why are we here? In fact, the very first church, like the very, very first church, Jesus and his 12 disciples, they asked that question. So one day, uh, while Jesus uh, and his 12 disciples, they, they were way up, like 150 miles north of Jerusalem. They had walked 150 miles all the way up there. They're outside of the city of Caesarea Philippi. Here's a picture of what the Caesarea Philippi looks like today. Okay, uh, not much to see there. Um, <laughs> But at one point, this was like a thriving city. And when Jesus was about the age that he was, uh, should be getting his learner's permit, about 14, 15 AD, this city was actually renamed Caesarea Philippi because that was the year that Caesar Augustus died. And they named this city after the great Caesar Augustus. As so Jesus and his disciples, they're walking up to Caesarea Philippi, and maybe they're talking, we don't actually know, uh, but maybe they were saying, you know, just like a few years ago, this place was renamed after Caesar Augustus. And they were talking about how Caesar Augustus was one of the adopted children of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was deified, meaning that people thought he was a God. He was considered to be a God, which meant that, that Caesar Augustus, the adopted son of Julius, was actually the son of a God. That, that's what they referred to him as, son of the deified Julius Caesar, son of a God. And so anyways, they, they make it way up north of Jerusalem where they had just left. The next place they're going to go to is way down south in Galilee. So they're only in Caesarea Philippi for a short period of time. And the disciples are probably wondering, uh, okay, what are, what are we up to now? Why, why are we here at, at this place of the son of a god, Julius Caesar? Now, some of you, you might know what happens in this place. It was, it was pretty important, actually. Uh, Jesus turns to his disciples um, who followed him all the way up here. He says, you know what this place is. You, you know who Julius uh, Augustus was, who, uh, Caesar Augustus was, Julius Caesar. You, you know all of that. You know what people say about him. What, what do people say about me? Who do you say that I am? The disciples, they have this little conversation amongst themselves. And that at the end of this little conversation, Peter, one of the disciples, he just blurts out, I'll tell you who you are. I, I think you are, Matthew chapter 16. Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
Like right now, we're, we're at a place of the adopted son of a dead God. He, he passed away a few years ago. We, we know that. But you, Jesus, you're, you're the son of the living God. And then Jesus stops and says, Jesus replied, Happy are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because no human has shown this to you. Rather, my Father in, who is in heaven has shown you. Peter, Peter you're smart. <laughs> But you're not that smart, okay? My father gave you the answer to that. And then Jesus, Jesus makes this prediction, this prophecy that, that I cannot begin to exaggerate the significance of enough. Jesus says this, verse 18, he says, I tell you that you are Peter. Drop, drop the Simon part. You are Peter or Petra in the Greek, which means rock. They're standing on this giant rock right now. And I will build my church on this rock. And the gates of the underworld won't be able to stand against it. A powerful statement. And I can't help but think, I, I can't help but wonder if there were maybe some, some snickers amongst the rest of the, the disciples after Jesus said this. Not because of Jesus, not because he was being disingenuine, but because, well, Peter? <laughs> like, really, Peter? That, that's the guy? Jesus, are you sure that's the guy you want to build your, your church, your assembly, your, your gathering, your movement upon? That guy? By the way, Jesus actually never used the word church when he said this, because the word church, it's actually uh, a German word. Jesus didn't speak German, uh, if you didn't know that. Um, Jesus actually spoke a language called Aramaic, uh, which then Matthew, who's writing this down, translated into Greek. The Greek word is ekklesia, which means uh, a gathering, uh, an assembly, a congregation. Church, that, that we use today, uh, it's a German word, which means house of the Lord. That's a terrible translation, missing the entire point of what Jesus meant. Because you see, one is a verb and the other is a noun. One implies, implies movement, a, a gathering, a people congregating together. The other church is, is a building. And well, a building is, is a building. It's fixed. It's static. And, and and all due respect to Jesus, I, I can't help but wonder when he spoke these words that, that he would build his church, his gathering, his movement, his ecclesia, and the gates of the underworld would not be able to stand against it. I can't, I can't help but wonder if that, that sounded kind of hollow and thin to his disciples. How, how humorously ironic. Because here they were, these, these were people who knew nothing but oppression, they were overtaxed, they were marginalized, they were constantly being occupied by some other foreign nation. That, that up until this point in human history, the prevalent thought throughout human history was that might makes right, whoever has the gold makes the rules, owning another person was just expected, you either own somebody or somebody owned you. Women, of course, were of lesser value than men. Children had no inherent value in and of themselves until they entered into the labor force. They weren't that different from property. Education was only for the wealthy elites. Your neighbor was those who looked like you, who talked like you, or who lived near you. And there was always going to be some other kingdom, some other nation that would come along, take our stuff, force us to bow down and bend the need to them. If it's not the Romans, it's going to be the Greeks before them or the Assyrians or the Babylonians before them. 
that, that's the world that they live in. That, that's the world that Jesus spoke these words into. And, and yet standing there in this place, Jesus has the audacity to say that not even the gates of the underworld or Hades or hell centered right here in the center of the Roman Empire would not be able to stand against his movement. But here we are. And where is the Roman Empire now? It's a few paragraphs in our history books. And, and, and all the Caesars and the emperors and the kings and the governors, they are but a footnote to the story of Jesus. I mean, to say that, that Jesus changed the world is an understatement, but how else do you describe it? That there's this rat rogue rabbi named Jesus from, from no good Nazareth. He came and he changed the world. And he was executed by the Roman government, but would eventually be worshipped by the Romans. And the cross that, he, that they hung him on would be hung and adorned throughout the streets and the homes of millions of people. Not as a symbol of death and violence, but the cross would then be a symbol of God's love and grace and salvation. I mean, nobody standing on that rock in Caesarea Philippi that day under the brutal Syrian sun could have ever imagined, ever conceived that, that this is how it would all turn out. And yet here we are. And we are invited into this grand narrative that nobody could have ever possibly imagined or conceived or orchestrated apart from the power of God. And Jesus has invited us into this same movement, this, this church, this gathering, just as he did for Peter when, when he turned to him and said, upon you, you, I will build my church, my movement, my gathering, my ecclesia, and the gates of the underworld can't stand against it. It's inconceivable, but it all started with a group of somebodies, right? like those 12 up there in Caesarea Philippi, like Peter and James and John and, and Mary and Luke and Phoebe and Priscilla and Aquila and on and on and on. And so the question we have to answer, the question that you and I have to answer is that as stewards of, of this church, uh, of Jesus's church that has been handed down to us generation after generation, the question we have to answer is, what am I going to do with it? What, what, what am I going to do with Jesus's church that has withstood, hey, this church that has withstood persecution and trial and growth and decline and, and schism and unity, and it's not always been on the right side of history, and yet there's always been this faithful remnant that has remained and prevailed to witness to the heart of the good news message of Jesus, that, that we are now the stewards of this church in this generation. The, the question is, what are we going to do with it now? Well, I think we do what we've always done. Well, what the church has always done. It, it might just look different. Our, our mission is, is always still the same, but, but our method changes. 
The, the mission of, of every church is the same, or at least it should be the same. But, but the method, the strategy for achieving that mission, it looks different from generation to gen- generation, from, from place to place, from denomination to denomination, from, from local church to local church, based on the context. The, the method changes, but the mission always remains the same. And, and here's, here's the mission Jesus just gave it to us. This is what Jesus says to his disciples after he has risen from the dead. The very last words recorded uh, by Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus says, I've received all authority in heaven and on earth. That's a powerful statement. All authority in heaven and on earth. But you know what? If somebody predicts their own death and resurrection and then pulls it off, yeah, they're kind of a big deal. Like, okay, you get all authority on heaven and on earth. Jesus says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And look, I myself will be with you every day until the end of this present age. And so there, there you have it. Jesus says, make disciples, baptize, teach to obey. He gives a nice little like three-point sermon, you know, just close with a song and a prayer and, you know, we're, we're off, we're good, right? Nice three points. Have people follow Jesus, be baptized into the life of Jesus, meaning you, you surrender your life to Jesus, you're raised into a new life with him, and then teach to obey, Teach people to do the things that Jesus did. Those are the three action words, right? Make, baptize, teach. Nice three-point sermon. But, but I think there's, there's one verb that we have missed. One, one verb that we have overlooked. And that's the first one where Jesus says, go. Go. Jesus says, Go. Get, get out there. Don't, don't stay here. This is a movement that is, that is intended to move out. So, so go out and I will be with you. I promise every step of the way that, that we're not to wait for the world to come to us. We're to go out into the world and there we will meet God out into the world. We don't bring God to the world. God is already out there ahead of us. We just go out and we find God there doing what God does saving, reconciling, loving, blessing the world. For, for far too long, we as the church, we've thought that we are the mission, that, that we hold God and we wait for the world to come to us, to come to our doors, and, and then we'll do those things. Then we'll make disciples and baptize and, and teach. And for a while, for a while, that strategy worked. It worked really well here in the United States for, for many generations. I mean, it was sort of a given that, that people were just going to come into the church. And we thought, all we have to do is, is be welcoming. And by the way, that's still true, right? We, we should still be welcoming. Whenever you have guests over, you welcome them. Of, of course, we, we still do that. But let's face the, the brutally honest facts, folks. Over the years, we've had fewer and fewer people to welcome. And that's, that's not just our church. That, that is every single church in the U.S. That, that's just the context of the culture that we live in. 
You know, the slogan of uh, the United Methodist Church um, for, for a long time, it's been this. It's been open hearts, open minds, open doors. Isn't that nice? I love it. It's adorable. I really do. I, I, think, I think that's a great slogan for who we are as, as this kind of tribe of Christians. We, we are a church that welcomes everyone. We, we open our hearts to everyone. And even though, yeah, we might think differently about things, we're all on this journey of learning to follow Jesus. I, I love it. Open hearts, open minds, open doors. However, the problem has been that, that we've thought that the doors of the church only swing one way. The doors of the church, they, they only swing inwards. Our, our doors are open to all for you to come in. <laughs> and then once you're in, we'll, we'll welcome you with open hearts and open minds. And then we'll, we'll do the, the making and the baptizing and the teaching only if you come in. Then we'll get busy with the great commission of Jesus. But friends, the doors of the church, they swing both ways. Amen. That, that, that's what Jesus says. That, that's why he says, first thing is, is go. But before making and baptizing and, and teaching, first thing he says is, is go, get. He doesn't say, wait, wait till the people come to you and then you can make and baptize and teach. He, he doesn't even say, welcome them. No, he says, go, go to them. And the promise is that once we go and we get out there, Jesus will be with us. Many of you uh, who have been a part of this church for, for some time, um, you probably know this story. I've told it before, but it's just such a good God story. I have to share it again. Um, so I've been the pastor here at First Dunedin um, for seven and a half years. That's crazy to think about. Um, but oh, thanks. Uh, but before I was serving here, uh, I was serving at a church in, in Jacksonville, but my in-laws, they lived in Palm Harbor, neighboring city. Uh, one time we came down to visit them. Uh, and they let us uh, have this nice little day date, my wife and I. They said, there's this really neat little town that you should go to. It's called Dunedin or, or Dunedin or Dun Dunedin. I, I, anyways, we went, uh, we parked right on Main Street and uh, there was this farmer's market going on. There was people all over the sidewalks and, and we start walking down uh, on the sidewalk on Main Street. Uh, we get to the corner of Main and Douglas waiting for the crosswalk. And, and I look behind me and there's a sign that says, First United Methodist Church of Dunedin. Now, I'm a Methodist pastor. I like, my eyes are trained to look for churches. But we had walked, we had walked the entire length of the children's ministry past this giant cross that we missed, um, the length of the sanctuary before we ever even noticed that it was a church. We're, we're trying to fix that, by the way, to make it a little bit more clear on Main Street that we are, in fact, a church and not just some giant armadillo building that somebody built. <laughs> but anyways, anyways, I, I see the sign and I turn, I turn to my wife, Jenny, and I say, whoa, how cool is this? There, there's a church right here in the middle of, of all of this that's going on. How awesome. I, I wonder what they do in there. I wonder if they're, they're part of, of the downtown community and they, they do some of, some of these events and stuff like that. And then we just kept walking. Within a year, I got a call from my boss telling me that I was being relocated uh, to serve as the pastor of a church in this cool, active little city called Dunedin. 
It's actually how she pronounced it. And then I got here and I realized, oh, that's not how you say it. Okay, okay. But I found, I found there a church filled with people of open hearts and open minds and a church whose, whose doors did actually swing both ways. One of the core values of, of our church, the DNA of this church, this is, this is what you all said. You said that, that we are a church. This is one of our core values. We are a church for our community, not just in it. We are for it, not just in it. We are a church for our downtown community, not just in the downtown. We collaborate with others in our, neighbor, in, in our community to make it a better neighborhood. We're, we're not just here taking up real estate. We, we are here to contribute. We are here to add value to our neighborhood. So back to our original question. Why are we here? Why are we here? The answer is simple. We are here for others. That, that's the Jesus way. Everything that he did was for others. You know, the church is, is one of the only institutions in the world that seeks to give itself away. It exists not for itself, but it exists for others. Jesus, up with his 12 disciples in Caesarea Philippi, he said, I will build my church on this rock and the gates of the underworld won't be able to stand against it. Nothing will stop it. Nothing, nothing, nothing is going to stop the advancement of my church because my spirit will inhabit it. My presence and my love will advance it until the very end of this age. And so he says, go, Go, nothing is going to stop this. And as you go, start going into your own little communities. And as you go out, make, baptize, teach, and I will be with you until the end of it all. And here's, here's the thing. Jesus said those words, not, not just to the 12 up there, but he says to you, to you, that every single one of you is invited to participate in the activity of God in the world today by being part of his local church. And so I, I know, I know that the church, right? The church hasn't always gotten it right. The church has failed. The church has sinned. The church has, has messed up and missed opportunities. The church has had some embarrassing moments in history. Yes, I know that. We, we all know that. But at the same time, like, that's kind of the point. That, that in spite of us, even in, in spite of us, in spite of ourselves, the church has continued to grow and influence and change the world. And that's not because of us. It, it's not because we're smart. It's not because we have been good at doing it, church. That, that's because Jesus said, I will build my church. I will build it. I, I'm going to do it. I, I will build my church. But Jesus invites you, just like Jesus invited Peter and Priscilla and Aquila and James and Mary and on and on throughout the ages to go and do the work alongside of him. To go. To go with the promise that he will be with us every step of the way. And so the question, why, why are we here? That's, that's easy to answer. We are here 
for others, not for ourselves. Where we're here at the corner of, of Maine and Douglas and Maine and Wood to connect people to each other and to Jesus Christ so that our communities will be more just, hopeful, and loving. That, that's why we are here. We are here. And we have been here for, for 109 years, standing on the faithfulness of Jesus' followers who went before us with a dream to make this little outpost of heaven here in downtown Dunedin, to gather and to build a church. We are here. The question is, Will we be here tomorrow? And I think the only way to answer that question with any certainty at all is to look deeply at ourselves and answer that question, why? Why are we here? And how we respond to that question, that determines our future. Because if we say we are here for ourselves, Let's put a for sale sign up. If we say that we are the church of Jesus Christ and we follow the ways of Jesus, meaning that, that we are here for others, Jesus will be with us and nothing will stop us. And so hear those words of Jesus when he says, so go, go. You, you are here for the world. So go. And if we do, and if we believe in our hearts and we have the faith to follow through how we respond to that question that we are here for others, Jesus promises to be with us every step of the way. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are here with us, that you have called us together to be your church, your assembly of people, to lift up your name. We thank you for the faithfulness that you have shown to us, into our lives, into the life of this church. God, remind us now and give us the courage to follow through on that great commission and that great invitation to go out, to share your gospel message, your good news that he is risen. That is the promise that we stand upon as your church, that new life is here and available to us, that it doesn't always have to be this way, that things can change, people can change, communities can change. Let us proclaim that good news. If there is new life, give us courage, give us hope, increase our faith. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.